Okay, for our next message, it's going to be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele, and it is entitled, The Good Infection. Good afternoon, everyone. So, on Tuesday night, this, this last Tuesday, uh, myself and my two boys, Joseph and Benjamin, we were driving home from music practice, and uh, we were listening to a podcast. And um, that, uh, that's really fun to listen to uh, podcasts with your teenage boys because they start to ask questions. So it's a sneaky way to get into their mind and figure out what they're thinking about. And uh, as we're driving along, we're listening to this podcast, and it, it was a religious podcast. And Joseph, who was sitting in the back seat, he's like, wasn't Joseph? He was in the front seat. Leave it to a teenager. So Joseph was sitting in the front seat, and he, uh, he asked me to stop the podcast because he wants to make a comment. And if you know Joseph, you know that he tries to take over whatever teaching is happening at the time. So just ask the teen class teachers how often he tries to take over the class, and they'll let you know. But he, he thinks deeply about things, and so here he was listening to this podcast. Dad, I have a question. And he says this. Would it be right to say that sin is like a virus that infects us and infects other people as well? Pretty profound, don't you think? And I was like, uh, uh, yes, actually. And I, you know, we've, we've thought about it maybe in these terms or something similar, but not for a while maybe that sin is like an infection. Think about that. That it infects us, infects, infects our mind, right, our heart. It, it infects the community that we live in, the world that we live in. It is a bad infection. And unfortunately, you know, we've all become uh, somewhat experts, right, on viruses over the last few years. I can't imagine why. So we've, you know, we've experienced, uh, you know, the coronavirus and everything to do with that. And so, you know, we've all read more than we care to read, probably, about the nature of viruses and, and how they function in the body and, and so on. But this virus, unlike coronavirus, has a fatality rate of about 0.02%. This virus has a mortality rate of 100%. Then, the virus of sin is completely deadly. And what do we do about it? What do we do as a world, as a community, about it? Well, we've developed lots of religions to try and attempt to curtail human behavior, haven't we? And different practices all around the world, we've, we've tried, but 
more often than not, they are just our own efforts to manage and contain the pandemic of sin. For us, we know of only one cure. What's that cure? Christ. Christ. But the cure itself can feel, at times, worse than the disease. Think about that. The cure, oftentimes, unfortunately, some of us know this and are experiencing it right now for some very serious medical conditions, can feel worse than the disease and can hurt us in the short term in the hope that in the long term it will heal us or strengthen us or allow us to fight against this virus. And yet, critical that we take the medicine. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages of sin, death. Anybody sinned here? Me and Mark are the only sinners in this room. Wow, how did you guys do it? We have all sinned, right? We have all fallen short. We are all on that path of death. 100%. You will not get out of it. In Romans chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, I was alive once without the law, but when the, the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. And it, when I read that, I'm thinking, you know, coronavirus, and I'm thinking some Chinese lab worker in Wuhan, and before they made this virus, we couldn't get sick from it, right? And it's like this, we have this situation, of course, it's, it's not real, but Paul is using it as an example that before the law came along, we couldn't get the virus of sin. The moment that came into the world, and we were convicted of our sin and received, started to receive the judgment for that sin. In 1 John 3, verse 4, he says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness or transgression of the law. Why am I talking about this? Well, what's happening in about a month? Passover. And what is that about? About redemption of our life, of our very being from our sin. It's important, I think, for us to recognize that. You know, we, probably more than most, keep this concept in our minds and in our hearts and try to be aware of our actions and our behavior as Christians. 
But even still, who likes talking about sin? Not even Mark put his hand up on that one. We don't like to talk about sin. We don't like that we have sin. We don't want to think about our sin. It brings guilt and shame, and, and we, we wish that we could just be completely divorced from that. And of course, we can't. We can't. And that is what Passover reminds us of. And so, I wanted to talk about this and get us thinking about it, so that we can do what Paul said, right? Which is, let a man or a woman examine themselves, and then arrive at Passover, and so eat of that bread, drink of that cup. <clears throat> do you have to arrive at Passover ready, qualified, perfect, without sin, to eat that bread? That's the point. But we should engage in this examination. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, sin acts like a virus. Well, in what way does sin act like a virus? Well, as, as I mentioned earlier, we've all become much more expert in how viruses transmit, right? Some viruses are airborne, aren't they? And we can cough. I forget how many, how many miles per hour that a cough or a sneeze <coughs> travels and floats across the room, and we're all thinking, oh, that, that's gross. Matt sneezes right now. I got all of you in sight. So viruses can be transmitted through particles in the air. They can also be transmitted on surfaces, right, things we touch. It can also be transmitted through touch with bodily fluids, right? You can get infections. You can get viruses from other people's blood, for example. Sin doesn't require the transmission through the air. It doesn't need to lay on a surface waiting for us to touch it. Transmitted by words and actions. About that. But sin is transmitted from one person to another by words and actions. How often have we found ourselves being on the <laughs> wrong end of the sinful actions of others? Right? And then we all act in response to that with humility and grace and forgiveness every time, right? No. I mean, sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. And we catch the virus, and we'll respond in kind. Anger, somebody comes at you in anger, natural human response is to step up and come back in anger too. Is that a righteous anger? Because we know there is righteous anger. But I don't know about you, I find myself much more in the unrighteous anger than in the righteous anger. So easy to respond to sin with sin. And then what do we do? Justify it. Because they did it first. So it was 
eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth if you want to try and be moralistic about it or some type of spiritualization of it. But in the end, it's sin begetting sin. Someone maligns us, lies about us. Really hard to resist the temptation to do the same to them. Sin acts like a contagion, moving from person to person, from heart to heart. Of course, there are ways in which sin is not like a virus. Because in reality, we can't, as we experience with coronavirus, we cannot actually control whether a virus enters our body or not. All our best efforts, all of the protection methods, are, have a very minimal impact, right? We've learned this. But sin can be stopped. It can be stopped before it works its work within us. If we would recognize when it's happening, we would respond in a Christ-like way to when it's happening. As James tells us in chapter, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 13, he said, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be, tempt, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, gives birth to sin, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And it's, it's so interesting, isn't it, that we have this imagery of, of birthing this virus of sin, almost like hell division, as this sin begets sin from our lusts and from our desires. There is a process to this infection. It, there's a way in which it works in us. We're drawn out of our own desires. Well, what is that desire? What is that desire? Well, this is where things get a little difficult. Because the thing is about those desires, they are inherently good. The things that we desire, unless we're some really messed up folks, psychopaths, we desire good things of themselves. For example, if we try to obtain companionship and intimacy, we want that. That is a good thing. We are designed for that. But if we try to obtain it in the wrong way, perhaps without marriage, without a covenant relationship, then the good desire leads to the infection. But what was intended for good, we can be led into sin. And then, of course, untreated, but it leads to emotional, spiritual sickness, and death. If we desire to be financially secure, who wants to be financially secure? Who is financially secure? I want to be financially secure. There's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. In fact, we're told to be good stewards of the things that God has given us, to manage our, our wealth, our money properly. But 
if we become financially secure at the expense of others, when we swindle them and cheat them, instead of working hard and investing wisely, well, then that good desire is twisted and broken and becomes that infection becomes deadly. These things are means by which our good desires are twisted, corrupted into something that we probably didn't intend for them to be. Then, we add on top of these basic human desires to be loved and accepted and secure or free from danger, if we add to these good desires all the hurt, all the damage that other people do to us, we add that on top of our own desires. Really see how sin just becomes this overwhelming virus. Who can save us from this body of sin and death? These are the words that we say. These are the words that, that Paul said. He's like, man, alive. Struggles with them so deeply. Causing pain, causing fear, causing broken relationships, deep emotional and spiritual trauma. And if that sin untreated causes eternal death. You can also see how this sin works in groups of people, can't we? For example, we, we have a really good example in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. This is an important lesson for us as we are heading into unleavened bread, Right? as we're preparing our hearts and our minds for examining ourselves. Paul is chiding the church in Corinth. We know the story very well. Who, for some reason, think that they are doing good by tolerating evil. Where have you heard that before? Everywhere. Right? It is everywhere. The sin, the virus sin of tolerance, of evil, and calling it good, is everywhere now. Everywhere in society, wherever we look. So this example is more relevant than ever. So Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named amongst the Gentiles. So even these Twisted Gentiles out here with their sexually immoral religious practices don't do this. And you guys are doing this. That a man has his father's wife. <coughs> and you are puffed up. You've not mourned and that he who has done this deed might be taken from you. For I indeed as absent in body but, but present in spirit I've already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit 
might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Let us therefore keep the feast of unleavened bread and of Passover, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we use this scripture often to show how the early church kept unleavened bread, Passover, and Christ their Passover, and Christ the unleavened bread, with that new meaning that he ordained. <coughs> so instead of calling sin a virus, Paul calls it leavening, yeast. And it works the same way in our lives. It works the same way personally. We tolerate a little bit of yeast. It doesn't stay a little bit of yeast. It doesn't stay small. It grows. It takes over what? Everything. Everything. In our life. Every facet of our life. My wife makes a lot of uh, sourdough bread. I have a really amazing recipe for that. And it's working the same way. It's, it's puffing this bread up. It makes it really good to eat. Really soft. Wishy. Kind of nice. Warm, especially right out of the oven. We're all like crowd around the oven as soon as the bread comes out. Desirable. Entices us. And of course, bread of itself, that's fine. The analogy is so strong. Nobody would ever think that they could just put a small amount of leavening in some dough and expect it to just stay right there and not permeate throughout the rest of the lump. Paul says, cut it out. Cut it out. Take it away. Put it out of your group. Even cutting off that person, they're unwilling to change. If they're not willing to repent, to recognize the error of their ways, and deal with the sin virus that is at work in them. But even if they do, you know, even if they do repent and turn their heart back to God and, and look for the means by which they can be cleansed and reconciled. This does not happen overnight. And it certainly will not happen at all if the church accepts the infection. So, are we accepting of things in our life right now, in our church right now. About all we can control, right? Or at least be aware of. 
Are there things, as we are heading into Passover, are there things in our life, sin viruses at work, that are causing a separation between us and the Father? Are there sin viruses at work in our hearts that are damaging us, breaking us, making us sick? I'm pretty sure there are. There are those things. But here's where it gets tricky. Because I know I do this. You know, I start to feel unwell, right, from an actual physical virus. Start to feel a little chilled, maybe some temp high temperature, a fever, starting a tired headache. What do we do? Well, if you're a guy, at least, you do not go to the doctor, right? I can treat this myself. So you'll get out all the remedies, and maybe, maybe this time it'll work, right? They may f make us feel good, and maybe if it's a light thing, it might just get us by, and we can take our homemade remedies our human-made remedies, and treat ourselves. But if we're truly coming down with a good old-fashioned bout of the flu, then lemon juice and cayenne pepper and a little ginger in this night-hot drink, it tastes great. It might clear the throat, but it's not going to take care of the viruses. And in fact, many viruses... We just have to wait for them to take their course. But there are antivirals. We won't get into the details of those because they're controversial. But there are ways in which we can treat some viruses. So, do we do the same thing with the sin virus? Thinking in your mind right now and in your heart, Something that you're struggling with. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's anger. Uh, bitterness. Or maybe it's uh, pride. We talked about how pride can be both boastful and overly humble, shall we say. Either way, it's pride. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Do we try and treat that virus that in sin infection ourselves. I won't ask you to raise your hand. Because we all do. Thinking about how we might treat it. Has anybody tried the uh, antiviral called Just Stop It? Right? I think some of us have seen that video, I forget who it was, that that did that, that, you know, we're struggling with something, and maybe we share it with a friend. Well, we'll just stop it. That's, you know, you know better than that. You shouldn't be doing that. Just stop it. Or if we don't share it with a friend, well, I can just stop it. How has that been going? How many times have we said that to ourselves? I can just stop it. And then we don't. 
So, that might work for about five minutes. So then we might try something else. What else might we try? There's something pretty unique to our tradition that we might try. And, and maybe, maybe broader Christianity, too. I will practice more law-keeping. More law-keeping. Because that will that'll take care of it. That will stop it. It sounds good. And it sounds a little strange to say, well, wait a second, are you saying we shouldn't keep the law? Well, no, but Paul already explained something to us, didn't he? What did he say? The law came, sin revived, I died. Sin uses the law against us. So, do we give up on the law? Not a, no. And we'll, we'll get into that scripture here in a minute. But there is a temptation to, well, I just need to practice the law more perfectly. And then the sin virus will be taken care of. If that worked, would we have sin in the first place? That's our answer, right? Well, we are. If that worked, then we wouldn't have sin in the first place. Striving to keep the law more and more perfectly in order to get things right, in order to be perfect. The wrong treatment, the disinfection. So what is the alternative to all of this? If our human-made remedies cannot help us, then how do we stop this infection? How do we stop it? How do we heal the damage that's been done and restore our spiritual life. Well, there was a man called David. King David. We're all very familiar with him, aren't we? He had quite an eventful life. I think Steve just was talking about him just, uh, just recently. And, um, you know, he got to the pleasure of living his life and his sin infections out for everybody to see. And then God put it in a book so that we could all read about his deepest sin. And then he wrote about it himself. It gives us a clue as to how we can treat the bad infection, something we call the good so, turning to 2 Samuel, verse 12, I think we're all very familiar with this, with this story. I'm going to pick it up where David thinks that he is uh, taking care of the problem. So he has had a certain gentleman killed, whose wife he stole, pregnant, and so now the, the problem is taken care of, and he's, you can just imagine him sitting on his throne, whew, glad I got that taken care of.
care of. Right? And nobody will ever know. I mean, that must have been his hope, at least. I mean, you could see how this virus of sin worked in his heart that he thinks. I mean, this is a man who has talked with God, who's followed God, who trusts him. He's held up as an example of faith in God, and for some reason he thinks that God didn't see any of what he did. So in verse 1 we find then, the Lord sent Nathan to pay David a little visit. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, uh, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. I think David was a little dense sometimes too, you know? Because I, I think you and I would ask, why are you telling me this story? But instead, he's just, he's filled with this anger. It says, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Uh-oh. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he has done this thing because he had no pity. So a question would be like, you die first and then restore it fourfold? Or maybe you mean the other way around. He is so angry, isn't he? And he's just in this righteous indignation and this rage. And then Nathan says to, to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel for the son. So David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I remember reading that for the first time. You know what I was, my reaction was? What? Who cares if he's the king? He did this evil thing. And right at that moment, Nathan could walk up to me and say, you are the man for the evil thing that I did, that we have done. I still don't understand exactly why he wasn't just taken out, but I'm grateful that he wasn't. Because God has this kind of mercy. Now, he brought about justice, right? He brought about judgment. He brought these things to come to pass. His own son took this role that God prophesied against him, did these things. And the sword has never left his family. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord, the blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Was he just talking about the baby, Bathsheba's womb? Or was he talking about the son, Christ Jesus, our Savior? He was the son of David. He surely died. About that. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it it died. The innocent son, the innocent child of David paid the price. Of course, in the greatest sense, our sin. That is part of the good infection. That is part of how we counter the bad. David lusted. He was gluttonous. He was self-centered. He was a murderer. He used the office of the king of Israel for his own personal gain. God gave him everything that he could possibly want, and if it wasn't enough, he could have asked for more. God would have given it to him. He betrayed the trust and the loyalty of a, of a soldier in his own ranks, in his own army. And, of course, he enticed see, the work of sin, of the virus of sin, which has infected Bathsheba also. And it made her sin against her husband, against God, betraying her husband. It's conspiring with David. Remember, he tried to get Uriah to go back to his wife and sleep with her so that nobody would know whose the child was. 
He consented to it. Because we don't read anything about an argument about it. Sin is a virus affecting from one person to another. And then even think about this. The commander of David's armies, who he gave the instruction to, put Uriah at the hardest part of the battle, and then fall back. He was enticed. It's a virus. It's a virus that can go anywhere. So what was David's response? Well, we can read that he, he mourned, he pleaded with God, he had sackcloth and ashes, and then, of course, after the, the baby died, he washed his face and accepted the judgment of God because his judgments are always good. So his larger response, though, what was David's larger response? Well, he told us what it was. It's a beautiful passage here, and it's interesting. We don't find a doubling down on keeping the law. And it wasn't just stop it. And it wasn't any other human treatment, human remedy for this sin that was in him. His response was remarkable, and it is a blueprint for us. You find it in Psalm chapter 51. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. What a heart he had. I mean, he knew that he deserved death. He cast judgment on himself. How many of us have experienced that same thing? You've repented. Sackcloth and ashes, spiritual sense, of these things that we have done. And what is he asking for? He's asking for good affection. He's saying, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. He's not doing any of this himself. There's nothing he can do. He can't remove his sin. He can't remove his sin just like he could not stop that child. He is powerless 
purge sin from himself. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy, gladness, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. There's only one way that we can be cleansed from sin. There's only one way that we can have that sin removed. There's only one way that we can be cleansed. And that of itself is amazing to realize we can be cleansed. But I don't think we accept it. How many of us hold on to the guilt? I suspect all of us. David right here is, is telling us that he can have a clean heart after everything he did. He's accepting that he can be clean. And it is done. It's gone. God does not see that sin anymore. It's blotted out. Why? We hold on to it. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Just imagine if God had taken David's life. As the just punishment for taking another man's life. We would not have this song. He would not have been able to show us how to repent, how to receive forgiveness from God, how to be cleansed by God, how to receive the good infection. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth to show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice. Doesn't desire sacrifice. Think about that. We have this whole sacrificial system that was in place. It was in place. It was practiced. He could go down to the temple. He probably did. From, a, from a, a religious practice standpoint, he knew that that wasn't the good infection. That wasn't the way, really, ultimately to fight the infection of sin. He says, sacrifices you do not desire, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not 
spies. Have you ever been in that moment where you doubt? You think that God will not forgive you? That he will not cleanse you? It's a lie. You are broken. You have that contrite heart. That's right here. He will not despise it. He will not despise it. He doesn't want us to double down and do more of whatever we think that we should do more of. He wants us to, to obey him and follow him, yes. But that's not how we receive the good infection. How we receive the good infection is to be broken in our hearts, to repent, to be spiritually in sackcloth and ashes. Accept Christ on Passover. Fully accept it. Fully realize that you are accepted, that you are redeemed. You are not despised. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. These other things are important. The sacrifices are important. It says sacrifices of righteousness too. They are important. We need to do those things. But what comes first? That broken, contrite heart. What David is talking about here, I'm borrowing from C.S. Lewis in this title, The Good Infection. He's talking about being infected with an other nature. The other nature than the one that we are born with. The opposite to our human nature. Oftentimes, when we do try and treat viruses, we are trying to treat them at their level, and almost like a counterpoint, an opposite to the virus in the medical sense. And that is what the good infection does. He says, Create in me a clean heart and a renewed spirit, a Christ-like nature. What do we do to have that? How does he do that? How does God create a clean heart in us? What mechanism does he use? More obedience? More sacrifice? Broken spirit, a contrite heart and the spirit of Christ Jesus in us. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer to it? Or do you not know that as many of us are baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Christ and 
His Spirit directing our path. His Spirit guiding our thoughts. His Spirit helping us to control our desires. Calling upon Him to yoke with us, direct us, direct our thoughts. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we all show, also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And this is part of the treatment plan that requires the death of our body the death of ourselves, the death of the old, old man. This is the part that feels like the medicine is worse than the actual disease. That we die in Christ. Paul at another time says we die daily. Do we die daily to ourselves? Follow the direction. Real intimate direction of Jesus Christ in us. Kill off the old self. Transplanting the nature of Jesus Christ into us. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we, we shall also live with him. What does that mean? we die with him, do we also believe that we live with him? Is that in the future? Or is that now? Are we in partnership with him now in this new life in Christ? Or are we waiting for the future? The answer is now. We shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God, Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus? Hold on to the guilt and the shame? Do we try and apply some of our own human-made remedies to this virus of sin? Or do we accept Christ our Passover and then follow his lead in our hearts, in our minds, in the spirit that works in us. David said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That is the means by which God directs us and shapes us, saves us. We're no longer living the original human life. We have a new life force in us. The life force of Jesus Christ. We are made alive and made eternal because he is alive. He is eternal. 
as we enter into this Passover season, let's consider why we are doing this. Why are we keeping Passover? Are we keeping it so that we can be righteous? That we can say, well, I kept another Passover, or I kept another days of unleavened bread? Or are we keeping it so that we can learn and deepen our relationship and learn how Christ works in us? Consuming him is that unleavened bread that we know that he is. We need the Spirit of Christ Jesus working in us, changing us, maturing us into the children of God. The good infection, good infection is about allowing him to work in our hearts, in our minds, truly change our perception and the choices that we make. I think if we let him do that work, the more we let him do that work, something else is going to happen we will find ourselves in obedience. We will follow that perfect law of liberty. We will, finally, moment by moment, start to make inroads against this virus of sin and death. We will have a clean heart. We will be cleansed and washed by the blood of the Lamb. blood by which we gain.